Orphan Black, the next chapter, is back for season two, and it's bigger than ever. The official continuation of the hit TV show stars Emmy Award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany as all of the clones. And this season, she's joined by original TV show cast members Jordan Gavaris as Felix, Evelyn Brochu as Delphine, and Christian Brune as Donnie. Season two picks up where season one left off with, spoiler alert, the secret of the clones finally exposed to the general public. Hundreds of previously unaware clones grapple with the news that they are part of a massive military science experiment. Meanwhile, anti-clone protesters fight to have the clones' rights restricted. Caught in the middle, the Sestras want peace, and when an unforeseen threat turns their world upside down, they must join forces with former enemies to protect the ones they love. Orphan Black, the next chapter, is available right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to listen and subscribe, or visit realm.fm for more information. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and did not necessarily represent those of AMC Networks and its employees. Nineteen eighty-four, Fort Worth, Texas. A pipe bomb explodes. A shotgun blast shatters a living room window. A slaughtered pet cat is left in a car as a message. The culprits? An anonymous group of honor students and star athletes. 2004, Granby, Colorado. Fed up with his city government, a man at the end of his rope starts welding armor plating onto a bulldozer, then heads for town hall. 1945, Nuremberg, Germany. A group of 50 Holocaust survivors band together with one mission, to kill as many Germans as possible, a nation for a nation. They gather mass quantities of poison and infiltrate the water supply. 2009, Lawton, Oklahoma. A teen boy calling himself the animal abuser tortures a cat on YouTube. A group of hacktivists decides that something has to be done. Welcome to season four of The Truth About True Crime. I'm your host, Amanda Knox. This season, I'm taking a new approach. Instead of diving deep into a single story, I'm looking into many different stories that share one thing in common, people taking the law into their own hands. Join me as I trace the thread of vigilante justice that runs through the fabric of our history, our news media, and our imaginations. The stories I found changed my own understanding of the scope, the morality, and the import of vigilante justice, which has, from our rebellion against the British, been a defining beat in the pulse of our national consciousness. We're the nation that exported the Old West as entertainment where border militias are currently taking it upon themselves to round up immigrants, and where a figure like Batman stands atop our skyscrapers in the night as a pillar of moral authority. This season has raised so many questions for me. What differentiates the masked crusader from the spontaneous mob? Is the rule of law sacred? Or are there times when justice can only be achieved by breaking it? What happens when the weak, the beaten down, fight back? 
If power corrupts, does powerlessness corrupt also? The stakes here are also personal for me. I'm not exactly on the best terms with official justice. With no reliable evidence or even motive, I was still tried and convicted of murder twice. It took four years of prison and eight years of trial for official justice to get it right in my case. But even so, I'm deeply troubled when due process goes out the window. Vigilantes, almost by definition, sacrifice the rights of the accused. The question, ultimately, is who gets to decide? Is it a jury of your peers? Is it the mob? Or is it some guy with a vendetta? And this is the question at the heart of the Sundance TV docuseries, No One Saw a Thing. Vigilante killings are rare. They make the news. But when Ken Rex McElroy was shot dead in Skidmore, Missouri in 1981, his killing didn't just make the news. It became a legend. The story of Skidmore and Ken Rex McElroy and the fallout and legacy of this killing is going to be our springboard into this season as we look at vigilantism from every angle. What motivates it, how it affects those who suffer from it, and those who commit it. Ken Rex McElroy was in town at the local tavern and the citizens were very alarmed and kind of gathered around. That's Professor Tom Carneal with the Nottoway County Historical Society in Maryville, Missouri. Talking to him, I got the sense that he'd been asked about Kenrex McElroy a thousand times. That morning has been seared into the town's collective memory. McElroy was with his wife, Trina, and he was carrying an M1 rifle affixed with a bayonet when the town folk descended on him. Ken Rex took his wife out to the truck to leave. And she was pulled out of the truck. And he was shot. By shot, he means eight rifle shots rang out, and two bullets hit Ken Rex, killing him instantly. And there were dozens of people nearby. One of them had to have seen who fired the shots. Well, you, he was sitting in the truck, and they saw him get shot. Mm-hmm. But they didn't see who shot him. Do you believe that anyone saw who it was who killed Ken Rex McElroy, but won't say? Um, Do I believe that? Do I believe that? What I have heard is the angle of the shots indicate that it came from an upstairs window from a vacant store across the street. And nobody saw who was in the window. Hmm. Um, 
I don't think anyone really knows precisely who pulled the trigger. Hmm. I wasn't there, but it was the report was that they pulled Trina out of a truck, just opened the door and grabbed her and pulled her out, and then the shots rang out. So that tells you somebody knew what was going on. Right. And also Trina says that she saw who shot and killed her husband. Well, yeah, I know what she says, but maybe, maybe so. Anyway, uh, when it came to a grand jury, they couldn't identify anybody. Professor Carneal says they couldn't identify anybody. But is it couldn't or wouldn't? It's a question the Sundance TV docuseries No One Saw a Thing really digs into. What's indisputable is that this moment came to define Skidmore, Missouri. Skidmore was never a big city, but it had the railroad stop, and it had a bank and post office and a grocery store. And that all continued to grow and be there until right after the Ken Rex McElroy event. And then at that point, poor little Skidmore began to go downhill. People wouldn't come in, didn't come in. And today, there's not much left. What are the people who are from the Skidmore area? What are they like? How would you characterize them? I would characterize them as basically good, hardworking, Western farmer type people. They were happy in their small community and their small town values. They had their school, they had their churches, they had the pumpkin show. They were a community. And for a while, Kenrex McElroy seemed like a part of that community. Well, Kenrex McElroy had a very good reputation of raising good coon dogs, and he was very good to his dogs, and people that were interested, they'd go to him about maybe breeding a good dog or buying a good dog. It was only, oh, I would say the last two years of his life that he began to really cause trouble in the community. Did you know him personally? Did I know him personally? No. It, but I knew him by sight. I knew mm. who he was. He would steal your pigs. And he had an old Buick convertible, and <laughs> Dad saw him, and he did this to several farmers around. He'd reach, he'd have the top down on the convertible, reach over the fence, grab a young pig, throw it in the back seat, and away he'd go. He was stealing pigs. But people won't shoot a man down in broad daylight just for stealing pigs. Ken Rex had been terrorizing the small town of 450 people for years, managing to beat 19 felony charges up to that point, ranging from theft and aggravated assault all the way to rape charges. Witnesses often refused to testify because he allegedly intimidated them, following his potential accusers home, parking outside, and watching. Strangely, what eventually led to Ken Rex's shooting started out as something very minor. He was very protective of his family. And like, for instance, the grocer accused his children of stealing candy. A very minor thing, but he didn't want his kids being pointed out as being thieves. He threatened the grocer and things got worse and he ended up shooting him. 
he was a town bully at that point, and people were simply frightened of him. As things progressed, Ken ended up in the court several different times, and each time it got a little worse. It just grew from one thing to another to another. Many times he was arrested and brought into the county court here in Maryville, and each time he would get off on some excuse. Until finally, Ken Rex was convicted, if only for one out of dozens of crimes. Second-degree assault in the shooting of Ernest Bowenkamp, the local grocer. But he was released that evening to go home and settle up his affairs. And, and that's what shocked the citizens of Skidmore so much, is they thought he had finally done something that he would go to prison, and there he is in town the next day. And that's mm-hmm. what really, really set the whole thing off that morning. The citizens of Skidmore called the county sheriff, and they had a meeting that morning. What can we do? Here's this man back in our community that threatens our young women, that steals from us, that shoots our grocer. What can we do? And the sheriff said, well, call me and we'll come out and arrest him, straighten him out. But the problem is the county sheriff is 15 miles away from Skidmore, and it takes a while to get there. That's not an answer you need if you've got somebody in the community you're scared of that has created problems for you before. You don't need to be told, call me and I'll come there in 15 or 20 minutes. You want immediate action. And then the sheriff left town. Whether he knew something was about to happen is a point of contention. Either way, someone took immediate action. Do you think the media had a role in how the town changed after Ken Rex McElroy was shot? Very definitely. After the Ken Rex McElroy incident, the press, other people in this community said, oh, Skidmore, oh, Skidmore, what bad people, you know, they shot somebody. Uh, they, they took the law into their own hands. Oh, it's a dangerous place. It's a terrible place. Well, that wasn't really true. They were protecting themselves as far as I'm concerned. But the fact that, like, no one, there's no name and face even to nope. to process you can't is troubling. Anybody. Nope. Now, it's a terrible thing, whoever fired the shots. That's a horrible thing to live with the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. But I, I, they were just pushed to the edge. They just couldn't right. take anymore. So why do you think this story continues to be told. Well, it goes back to, oh my God, vigilantism is alive and well again. Well, yeah, we, in these rural communities, as we developed in the 1850s, 60s, 70s, as you develop the West, sometimes the local people did have to take things into their own hands. It's kind of like a recreation of the old frontier justice. Nobody wants that. We don't want that kind of life again. Nobody does. But in this instance, it was a matter of this man has harassed us, bullied us, threatened us, stolen from us. 
and he was supposed to go to jail and didn't, and we're going to rid our community of him. So would you say that Skidmore did do a vigilante thing? Oh, boy, I don't know. I really... Um, I, I really... I don't think I can answer that. I don't think I know. Sure. I don't even have an opinion on it, I guess. Okay. Hmm. I don't want it to be a vigilante thing. This was something I would hear many versions of in my interviews for this season. When we talk about vigilante justice, what we want to be true and what is true are often at odds. I, I'm just very, very sorry that, that Skidmore gets the reputation or has the reputation, oh, that's where Kendry X. Roy was killed or they killed their town bully, blah. Uh, in some aspects, I think is very, very unfair. Uh, I wish they would say more like, this is what happened when the elected officials let the community down. What strikes me the most about the vigilante killing of Kenrex McElroy is that one vigilante action enabled another. The shooters, whoever they were, took the law into their own hands. But then there's the townspeople, the witnesses. They too were vigilantes, steering the course of justice themselves, not with guns, but with silence. The Sundance TV docuseries No One Saw a Thing explores this legacy and transmission of violence and vigilantism in Skidmore, for the story doesn't end with Kenrex McElroy. But I kept thinking, it doesn't start there either. Kenrex McElroy was shot dead in 1981. 100 years earlier, in the 1880s, Missouri was the frontier, a state with divided loyalties to the North and South, far from the big cities of the East Coast. What happened to Kenrex McElroy was part of a long history that stretches back to a time when justice was a lot more violent and swift, when outlaws outnumbered lawmen, who often had to step aside lest the mob rip them apart too. And this history became embedded and magnified in our pulp tales, our radio dramas, and films. Had McElroy committed a quarter of the crimes that he was accused of committing, I can't help but thinking that he wouldn't have made it nearly that long, a hundred years or so earlier. That's Dr. Brooke Blevins, an author and historian who specializes in the history of the Ozarks. I mean, you're talking about a very rural place in a very rural region in general in Missouri. You know, a lot of people feel that they can't necessarily rely on elected officials and law enforcement. In 1981, vigilante action was exceptional. It was newsworthy. It stirred moral debate. But just a few generations back... This new land of the West was a wild, unruly territory. 
into which brave American pioneers moved in covered wagons, on horseback, and afoot. Theirs was a rugged existence, for they not only had to settle and build, they had to fight. Here, beyond the reach of law and order, might was right. The best shot was the best man. Programs like the Lone Ranger celebrated this kind of lawlessness as part of the pioneer spirit, whitewashing the slaughter and displacement of Native Americans, and coloring bloodshed as necessary and even heroic. But actual vigilantism in the Old West was far less romantic and far more political. The bald knobbers of southern Missouri are a perfect example of that. Their goal was to uh, bring their particular county, their communities, under Republican control and to oust the Democrats by whatever means necessary. And it's really an extension of the Civil War. Missouri, as a border state, was riven by bushwhacking. Guerrilla warfare waged citizen against citizen, Democrat versus Republican. From 1883 to 1889, the bald knobbers roamed the Ozarks, wearing hoods with black horns and creepy white faces painted on them, with the mission to put a stop to bushwhacking and to aid law enforcement and oppose corruption and illegal activities, especially those committed by Democrats. Keep in mind here that the political parties of the late 1800s were flipped in many ways from what we think of now when we hear Democrat and Republican. Abe Lincoln was a Republican, and the Southerners who had supported the Confederacy and who opposed Reconstruction in the wake of the Civil War were Democrats. Throughout most of history, vigilantism has been a, a communal thing, and I think that's one of the ways that, that real-life vigilantism in American history differs from what the media has made us think about vigilantism. It's very rarely that lone, heroic person out there taking the law into his or her own hands. It's usually a big group of people. And that's just what happened to Ken Rex McElroy. This country has a long, bloody history of mob violence. I won't call it justice, though it often dresses itself up as if it were. And sometimes, the law is just unable to keep the mob in check. You're in the right bad spot. You savvy that? Yes, it's a lynch mob. They're coming for you. Don't they believe in giving a man a fair trial? Well, that all depends on who the man is. In your case, it ain't likely you'll live to see your trial. I see. There's times when no number of lawmen can prevent a mob from storming a jail, lynching a prisoner. This is likely to be one. Huh? When it comes down to it, vigilante justice represents a failure of the state some deficiency on the part of the official authorities, whether that's from insufficient enforcement, corruption, unjust laws, or a failure to earn the trust of citizens. The story of Kenrick's McElroy is case in point. But bullies aren't always lynched by the mob, and vigilantes aren't always heroes. 100 years before McElroy was gunned down, another bully in Missouri committed countless acts of violence and was eventually brought to justice by an extrajudicial bullet to the back of the head. But unlike Ken Rex, this man was glorified for his lawlessness, and the vigilante who killed him went down in history as a coward. 
If you haven't figured it out, I'm talking about the outlaw Jesse James and his killer, Robert Ford. An outlaw and a vigilante are not the same thing. In theory, vigilantes are at least attempting to achieve some form of justice, however twisted or personal. How strange, then, that a violent, selfish man responsible for many deaths became known as a vigilante, if not exactly a hero, then someone who, despite his criminal activity, represented some important characteristic of the American spirit. Independence, cleverness, determination. I can't help but think that, at least in the United States, we sometimes want a hero so bad that we invent one. Jesse James was not a hero. He was a staunch Confederate who massacred Union soldiers. He stole from the big banks, yes, but also from train passengers and common depositors. And there's no evidence to suggest that he shared his spoils with anyone but his gang. Legend has it that he killed dozens of men every year. He murdered far less in reality, but even so, he was far more violent than Ken Rex McElroy. In the case of Jesse James, I think even today in the 21st century, most people don't think of criminal probably right off the bat. So I think there is still that sort of Robin Hood romantic element that surrounds his memory, despite what historians, especially in recent years, have revised about his story. And, and a lot of that had to do with the fact that Jesse James was a legend in his own time, and he was a media creation, a willing media creation. He was lifted up as a hero to the Southern cause, uh, specifically by John Edwards, who was a newspaper man in Kansas City who had been a former Confederate officer and was an unreconstructed rebel. The Confederate South suffered a tremendous cultural loss at the end of the Civil War. Their pride, their ego, their identity was under threat. And with the propaganda of John Edwards, Jesse James became a hero, someone who would stand up to the financial and legal order imposed by the federal northern government. So much of what Edwards and other people eventually wrote about Jesse James was just complete fiction or only half-truths. It's really hard to tell uh, where the real Jesse ends and the romantic, uh, legendary Jesse begins. For common people and for poor people, anyone who took on the banks and the railroads, any organization, any corporation that represented big money in the Gilded Age. There are lots of people who are willing to champion anyone who takes on these people. And uh, that's what they see uh, the James Gang doing, is robbing trains and robbing banks. I don't think there's any indication that they're playing Robin Hood and distributing what they steal to... Uh, the masses out there, uh, but there are still plenty of people who are willing to make them heroes just because they share common enemies, apparently. I mean, what's your opinion on, you know, the rule of law and the importance of it or whether vigilantism could be a good thing? Well, I think a lot of Americans have a divided mind on this. 
And that's why we still often romanticize the vigilante. I think there's always that part of our mind that realizes there is no perfect system, that the legal world is operated by fallible humans like the rest of us. And maybe uh, at times what we need is that almost godlike figure who knows right from wrong and can take the law into his or her own hands. I think one thing that's fascinating about Jesse James's legacy is he himself was a victim almost of a vigilante. I mean, Robert Ford was working in conjunction with law enforcement a little on the side, um, shadily, but he struck down Jesse James and he doesn't have the legacy that Jesse James does. He's not seen as an underdog. He's seen as a coward and a villain. Like, why is that? Is that just part of the the media creation and, and the legend? Whoever uh, was going to bring down Jesse James, they weren't going to be remembered the same way he was just because of his heroic stature. Again, a heroic stature not deserved, but one cultivated by the media and cultivated by James himself. Uh, mm-hmm. That was, that was I, I guess, just too powerful to overcome. Jesse James was the lad that killed many a man. Here of the Danville's reign of what a mean little coward that shot Mr. Howard has laid for Jesse in his grave. Jesse had a wife to mourn for his life. Three children, they were brave. But this mean little coward that shot Mr. Howard has laid poor Jesse in his grave. I know how powerful media representations are. I'm still battling a decade of media that painted me as a killer. And our media wants a killer. Not just our tabloids, but our legitimate newspapers, our murder mysteries, our movies. We want killers and we want heroes, black and white. But a part of us craves that gray area too. That spot in the middle where someone is doing the right thing for the wrong reasons, or the wrong thing for the right reasons. Maybe that's why we've had a cultural obsession with the vigilante hero, from Jesse James all the way to Batman. It's a never-ending battle for truth, justice, and the American way. You see vigilante justice everywhere in American entertainment, stretching back generations. My grandpa watched The Lone Ranger. My dad watched The A-Team and Knight Rider. And I grew up with Batman the Animated Series. But in looking at how we portray vigilantes in our cultural myth-making, I wanted to look at something that really gets at the heart of the matter, the moral question of who gets to decide, 
of whether vigilantes are heroes or villains. And that led me to the 1999 film, The Boondock Saints. We do not ask for your poor or your hungry. We do not want your tired and sick. It is your corrupt we claim. It is your evil that will be sought by us. With every breath, we shall hunt them down. The story goes like this. Two rough but pure-hearted Irish-American brothers kill a pair of mobsters in self-defense, and they have an epiphany. Their God-given mission is to hunt down the mafia. They are pursued by a genius gay FBI detective, played by Willem Dafoe, who eventually converts to their cause. Like the vigilantes it depicts, it's a film people either love or hate, a cult classic, or a celebration of toxic masculinity. Personally, I like it. And I wanted to meet the man who made a name for himself by telling a brutal and fantastical story about vigilante justice, the writer and director, Troy Duffy. Are you a vigilante junkie? I like them, you know, mm-hmm. obviously, quite a bit, <laughs> you know. Uh, but uh, I wouldn't necessarily say a junkie. I mean, like, like I haven't gone to see Avengers, where you can see, like, 12,000 superheroes in one movie. But mm-hmm. it's amazing what our, how our appetites have increased for this. And, you know, I want to get, I want to, get to that in our discussion. Yeah, I mean, get to it right now. Why, have a, why do we have an increased appetite for vigilantes? Well, I mean, it's mm-hmm. us, you know. We, we pay for it. That's why they do it, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know. Uh, and, but, you know, sort of the question is, like, why do we like it so much? And there's obvious answers. That taps into primal instincts that we all have. It's much older than mm-hmm. comic books. Probably as old as man, you know. But what explains this sudden explosion of vigilante superheroes in our movies and television shows, our appetite for this has gone into absolute overdrive. I've never seen anything like it. To me, there's two culprits. And uh, one, in my opinion, is there's sort of a general sense of increased unfairness and injustice in society as a whole. The institutions that are supposed to protect us or make things more fair, Mm. more just, uh, our mistrust of them is at an all-time high. So Mm. we have less and less faith in government the church, uh, law enforcement, and the second one, in my opinion, uh, is the internet and social media. You Mm -hmm. know, we're sort of, we've become more and more inept at dealing with and communicating with our our fellow humans, you know? Through our our devices, when we can escape into fantasy worlds all the time, worlds where we can be anonymous and say whatever we want with little or no consequences. He's got a point. It's not the first time I've imagined that internet trolls, with their pseudonyms and avatars, have a perverse vision of themselves as vigilantes. But harassing a stranger is a lot different from shooting them with a silenced pistol, a la the boondock saints. How do you think you portray vigilantes in your work? We now see their flaws more. Mm -hmm. Uh, Their personal pain, their addictions, failed love affairs. They become more human and therefore more tangible and relatable. And maybe mm-hmm. we're a little bit ahead of the curve on this with Boondock because Connor Murphy don't have any special magical abilities. 
my favorite scene is that really, really grounding moment in the credits when you made the decision to like have different, you know, on the street characters arguing about whether or not the Boondock Saints are good or bad. You want to you want to hear something fun about that? Your your favorite scene cost me five hundred bucks. It was done in one day. <laughs> <laughs> it cost me five hundred bucks and a bunch of pizza. I knew I needed it because I knew that, you know, if this actually happened, it would probably split society right down the middle. Half people mm-hmm. saying, "Hang them high. They're just as bad as the criminals they killed." The other half going, screw you, you're not doing your jobs. I'm glad they're out there. I feel like I felt most represented in that in those credit moments because you know, I I have a complicated relationship with justice, right? You know, like I've had a system fail me, um, or at least, you know, fail me for you know, a, a long time. So, you know, the system felt very, very scary and like a huge bully and hurt me and my family for a long, long time. Um, And, you know, it took a lot of people working, you know, pushing against that authority um, for me to get out. And on the other hand, my experience of vigilantes now is people sending me death threats talking about how they're going to torture me to death because that's what I deserve. That's why it's the the vigilante thing always gives me like I I can't help but think one that there are, there are a certain number of people in the world who have this happen to them and you know in the past they've been burned at the stake or lynched and it feels weird to belong to a legacy of that um, and to feel, you know, damn, I got off lucky compared to a lot of my comrades who were accused of things that they didn't do. But also I can know that a lot of the people who tell me that they're going to kill me online are likely just saying that because they want me to feel afraid. But you never know. You never, never know. And you never know when someone's going to take that sort of vigilante spirit to heart and try to and like decide that they know what the truth is and what good and bad is. And and in my world and experience in life, like I would be the victim of that. And yeah, and that's just a weird place to be in every time I go and see a, you know, a Marvel movie, (laughs) you know, right? Like, and I wonder as someone who is telling stories for a living, what kind of responsibility do you feel to portray a complicated narrative versus uh, a black and white narrative? How people absorb it is, you know, that's kind of the nice pie and ice cream thing after a movie. You get to go discuss those issues, illuminate what your thoughts are on the matter. But as for like, you know, self-censorship or responsibility to not do certain things because society will take it this way or that. Well, some people are going to take shit literally and do stupid stuff. Mm. You know, so I have a responsibility to the story, the characters, maybe even the actors, you know, mm-hmm. and portraying them, you know, as cool as humanly possible. Mm-hmm. But uh, in terms of society... Uh, that's a whole ball of crazy sometimes and you're, you're best to, to just leave that alone and leave it out of the mix. But yeah, we don't really want a vigilante 
uh, when when we're in trouble. It's nice to it's nice to mess with them in um, in movies and stories, but like, if I'm accused of murder, I don't want some you know cop that doesn't play by the rules. I want I want, I want lawyers that know the law. I want <laughs> investigators that are that that stink of coffee and cigarettes that have been doing this so long that they can figure it all out. Mm-hmm. I don't want a freaking vigilante at that point. I want to be protected. We all want to be protected, as Duffy says. But for so long in this country, the law protected white Americans at the expense of black Americans, even when those white Americans donned white hoods and took the law into their own hands. This is the elephant in the room when we talk about vigilantes. It can't all be the Lone Ranger and the Boondock Saints. There's also our long and ugly history of lynching the most rampant form of vigilante justice in 20th century America. Most of us look back in horror now. We recognize these extrajudicial killings as racial terrorism. But at the time, the white Americans who were perpetrating these atrocities thought they were in the right. They thought that stringing up or burning alive black and brown men accused of crimes, or those who happened to be nearest at hand, Those white Americans thought they were delivering justice. And the official law looked the other way. And far too often, it still does. Sometimes, we think the vigilante is a hero driven by a pure, personal sense of duty to do what's right, regardless of the rules. Other times, selfishness and hatred are the defining characteristics of the vigilante, as they use violence to impose their personal vision of rightness on others. That's why I'll be looking at both extremes and everything in between. More often than not, what we think a vigilante is depends on the situation. Are we sitting in the vigilante's perspective or his victims? And if that's true, is capital J justice itself just a matter of opinion? It leads me to wonder how many shapes and forms vigilantism takes, which lean towards good, which towards bad, and which we celebrate or condemn in our media. Next time on The Truth About True Crime, I delve into cases where vengeance is served hot, vendetta style, in an airport terminal and from behind the armored plating of a bulldozer. This podcast is written and produced by me, Amanda Knox, and my partner, Christopher Robinson, and directed, edited, and sound designed by Galen Mullins. It is executive produced by Malka Media, Sundance TV, and AMC Digital Studios. In the meantime, be sure to check out the Sundance TV docuseries, No One Saw a Thing, at sundancetv.com. And please subscribe, rate, review, and share the truth about true crime.